Well, today we come back to the story of Joseph. Though we did a survey of it last week, we come particularly today to the end of the story of Joseph as given to us in Genesis, particularly today, 45. Though you might know the famous verse in verse uh, chapter 50 verse 20 that is also relevant to this brothers uh, what you meant for evil God meant for good and I've entitled this sermon today a providential savior we've been thinking about our savior we've been thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament not allowing ourselves to come to the Old Testament and view them merely as moral tales as they are often recorded or just mere historical background to the gospel um, but rather we see in the old testament the groundwork laid for the coming of christ the forms if you will are being established that christ will come and fill by his work and fulfill remember jesus says to his disciples i did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it it's not like okay the old testament crumple that up throw that away that served israel in its time but now we're doing something different no jesus tells them what i'm doing is the fulfillment of that that was established so that i might come and fulfill it all the different forms so we've been kind of hop skipping and jumping our way through the book of genesis considering particularly the lives of the patriarchs and in so doing trying to look at them through the lens of jesus christ and look at jesus christ through the lens of these stories If these stories are meant to prepare the way, then we assume that in reading them, we should be able to see Christ more clearly and understand his work a little better because these stories are supposed to be preparing our hearts and minds to understand what he does. That is to say, Jesus doesn't just drop out of the sky, right? Jesus is not doing something random, but Jesus is doing something consistent with the stories and the patterns the narrative arc of the Old Testament. So we thought about Joseph last week and how he bookends, along with Noah, maybe the story of redemption, that Joseph presents to us a suffering Savior. He is clearly the Savior of Israel, small s, Savior. And in that reality, of course, we must see Christ, who is the capital S, Savior. But it was the way Joseph saved that, again, lays the tracks for Jesus to come and do what he does. That is, if we look at the way God saves through Joseph, then we should be prepared for a suffering Savior. But in fact, Israel was not prepared. They were were not looking for a suffering Savior, right? They were looking for a Savior like the world would have. They were looking like a king for a king like the nations have. Think about the time of David and Saul. God has a king in mind for them, but they want a king like the other nations. Israel wants a king like the other nations when it comes to the time of Christ. If we're going to have a savior to save us from our enemies, which they deemed as Rome, then we're going to need a king like the other nations, not a Joseph. But had they not been paying attention? Had Had they not been riding on the tracks that had been laid down by the Lord? What kind of savior will the Lord provide? And what we see in Joseph is a suffering Savior. He's a Savior indeed, able to provide for all the needs of his people. In fact, he says, shockingly in this text, brothers, God sent me here in order to preserve you and to preserve life. Right Here is your Savior, but that salvation, small s, 
came through great suffering. And Jesus, of course, is our ultimate suffering Savior. He, too, grants life, but he does it through great and, and, and much more severe suffering than Joseph knew anything about. But again, the tracks are laid. And this book ended the story of Genesis because on the other hand, we had Noah, who also brings salvation. But his was not so much a suffering, uh, he was not so much a suffering savior as much as an obedient one, a laboring one. He labors to build the ark by which his family will pass safely through judgment and into the new creation. And both of these stories, and of course all the Old Testament stories, find their climax and their resolution in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ark builder. Jesus Christ is the obedient one who labors throughout his life to provide a way of escape for you through the final judgment, God's climactic judgment, this time not of a flood, but of eternal judgment. And if you are hidden in the ark of and refuge of Christ's work, then you will pass safely through that judgment and into the promised land. But if you choose to go it yourself, if you choose not to enter the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you choose not to clothe yourself in his obedience, then you will face those floodwaters by yourself, the eternal floodwaters. And the text tells us it will not end well for you. So on either end of the story, we have the work of our Savior, the laboring, obedient Savior who builds the ark, the suffering Savior who endures faithfully what the Lord's providence brings to him, and he is exalted to a place where he can then bless and all of these, of course, find their resolution in Christ. Now, I titled the sermon today, A Providential Savior, because that's really what we get. I mean, if you're going to teach on the doctrine of providence, this is the story you go to, and particularly, again, chapter 50, verse 20, but also this whole text of 45, because Jake, uh, excuse me, uh, Joseph's vision here is now 2020. Right? We say hindsight's 2020. Well, Joseph is now looking back with that hindsight, and it is 2020. He is able to see clearly now what would have almost been impossible for him to see when he's down in the well, the pit, when his brothers are conspiring, do we kill him, do we sell him? <laughs> Joseph's down in the pit, and he hears his brothers are weighing the options. Do we sell him into slavery, or do we kill him? What is Joseph rooting for <laughs> in that scenario? You know, when he's there, how can he possibly see what the Lord is doing? Or when he's finally sold to the Ishmaelite traders and brought to Egypt and sold into Potiphar's house, how can he possibly see what the Lord is doing? Or when Potiphar's wife lies about him and accuses him of rape and now he's thrown into prison? Or when the, the men forget about him and leave him in the prison, how can he possibly have vision to understand what the Lord is doing? But it's here. In Genesis 45 and in verse 50, at the end of the story, that Joseph amazingly is able to see with absolute clarity. And I say absolute clarity because he is so clear in his vision that it leads him to treat his brothers the way that he treats them. This is not merely a cognitive vision that he has. It's a heart vision. He gets it. And he gets it so much that he is able to treat his brothers with grace. And that is shocking indeed. So, a providential savior. What is providence? Providence is the, uh, the, the, the belief in the mercy and acts of God by which he upholds, sustains, governs 
all his creatures and all their actions. Right? That's the doctrine of providence. Providence is the fact that God upholds, sustains, preserves, governs all his creatures and all their actions, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Okay? It's the, it's the work of God by which he preserves and governs all his creatures, all their actions. It's the sustaining work of God, that God is working, the doctrine of providence says, in and through all the contingencies of human existence. Are all the little decisions you make, all the things that seem random, are all being governed, upheld, and sustained by the sovereign hand of God. Our confession is clear about this, that this does not in any way undo real contingencies that your decisions really do matter. They really do make a difference. But nonetheless, our free, and I'm going to put that with a small f, right? We're not autonomous, just like the goldfish is free to swim in the bowl, right? The bass is free to swim in the pond, but the bass is not free to get out and walk around. So you are free, but you are not autonomous. You are not God. You have freedom within the bounds of God's sovereignty because he alone is God. Right? You are fish. You cannot get out and walk around. It's just who we are. But within our pond, we are free. We make real decisions. You, make re you made real decisions to come here today. Well done, by the way. Because <laughs> it was a free decision that you made. I did too, by the way, so thank you. <laughs> we made real decisions today, yet those real decisions are underneath the sovereign hand of God so that God is upholding and governing them all by his sovereign will. This is what the doctrine of providence says. So that Joseph can say in chapter 50, verse 20, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Who is responsible for Joseph getting to Egypt? Well, the brothers are responsible. They sold him into slavery. They made real decisions that had real consequences, and it really ended up with Joseph going to Egypt. They are responsible. Yet, on another hand, God is responsible. Joseph does not say, brothers, what you meant for evil, God used for good. He says, brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, there's mysteries here to be sure. But what this text reminds us is that God is sovereign even over the evil acts of men. Now, you might scratch your head, and you might say, but if he's sovereign, why go through, through all that? Why not just get him a, a first-class ticket to Egypt, make it, you know, give, get him there comfortably, you know, you're sovereign, convince Pharaoh, and elevate him to the right hand of Pharaoh. Why go through all this? Well, I'm not God. Don't, don't, don't ask me. He doesn't give me the answers to that. God has his ways, and I don't understand them. Even as we pray today, his ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. And part of being a Christian and part of being a human being, frankly, is humility. To submit ourselves to the purposes and the sovereign hand of God and to trust that his ways are good. And you might ask, well, why should I trust that? In the midst of our suffering, you may in fact say, well, how can I be convinced that his ways are good? What kind of good God would allow this path? And of course, it's there that we need to come back to the cross. It's always, always in these things we need to root ourselves back in the cross. 
It is in the cross that the goodness of God is vindicated once and for all. A God who does that, a God who sends his only begotten son to die and to bear his wrath so that you don't have to, a God who does that is a God I will trust in the midst of my darkest hour when I don't understand what on the earth he's doing. I will trust him because he's done that. So we trust his providence, though it is oftentimes inscrutable. Again, as we sang this morning, oftentimes there are frowning providences that we have to deal with. We don't understand why we're going through this dark night of the soul. But nonetheless, it is he. We are confident. I don't care what anybody does to me. I don't care what role anybody's hands have in it. Ultimately, it is God whose intention I care about. And what anybody might mean for evil to me, I am confident that God intends it, intends to allow it for good. This is the confidence that we must have. So I want us to think about three things quickly here. First, the providence of God. I'm already into that point. I can't restrain myself. My introductions bleed into my first point. But I want us to think about the providential Savior that is Jesus Christ. You'll notice in chapter 45, Joseph's amazing grasp of this. He reveals himself to his brothers, and he tells them not to be upset with themselves. This is what's so shocking. Verse 5, But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice, he doesn't deny that they did it. Right? He doesn't let the providence of God overwhelm human agency. Right? You sold me here, but don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you. There's an understanding of providence. Look, I don't deny human agency. You sold me here. In some sense, I am here because of you. But I see through that it is God who sent me here. I now see the purposes of God in this. Now, I think here in, in this case of, um, of Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, when he's speaking after Pentecost, we just preached through Acts. Of course, it's been a while that we were in chapter 2. But in chapter 2, uh, Peter is now filled with the Spirit. He now has eye 2020 vision. He's able to see what he could not see before. And he stands out there, you'll remember, in the streets of Jerusalem, and he's preaching. And this is what he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Notice, brothers, friends, you took him, you crucified the Lord of glory. But also know that this was done according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Right? Peter is able to see now with 20-20 vision the hand of God's providence. In the midst of the darkness, Peter could not see it. His whole world was falling apart. He could not make sense of it. He's, he's bringing a sword to the Garden of Gethsemane, lopping off Cleopas's ear. Right? Uh, uh, not Cleopas, who is it? No. Uh, Mal Malchus, Malchus, thank you. I got Cleopas on because of Luke 24. Uh, 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 Malchus's ear, 
lopping off his ear, denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Peter's a mess. He can't see anything. His vision is so blurred. But when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, and particularly when he bestows the Spirit, now Peter is able to see. And now he sees the hand, the providential hand of God in this. He wasn't looking for a suffering Savior. He was looking for a king like the other nations had. But now he sees that it is just that which he needed, a suffering Savior. He needed an ultimate Joseph, brought by sinners' hands to the very place by which sinners uh, would be redeemed. Jesus says this in Luke 24. I chose our New Testament reading to be Luke 24, which is a familiar text for us. But again, in some sense, you have Jesus in Luke 24 doing for Cleopas and his friend what Joseph is doing for his brothers here. It's Jesus' revelation. They don't recognize him. Joseph is there with his brothers in, in Genesis 45. They're, he's right in the presence. They don't recognize him. They could not believe. There's nothing in their minds. There's such cognitive dissonance between what's happening in front of them and what their minds are telling them can and can't be true that there's no conceivable way this can be Joseph in front of me. And then Joseph reveals himself and essentially says, brothers, didn't you see this is the way it had to be? And Jesus does this in Luke 24. He's walking with them. They can't see him. They can't understand. But Jesus does the exact same thing. Brothers, don't you see? God sent me ahead. Don't you see? This is the way it had to be. God sent me <clears throat> providentially through all this suffering so that I could be here to preserve life, so that salvation could come through me. Our Savior is a providential Savior. And boy, do we learn some lessons here. Mark mentioned when, we, <clears throat> when uh, Carol um, called us to pray for Eleanor, and he mentioned perseverance. I mean, doesn't, doesn't the doctrine of providence, again, we don't turn the story into a moral lesson, but that's not to say there aren't things we need to take from it. Don't we learn from the story of Joseph and from the story of the Lord Jesus Christ the need to wait upon him in the midst of our uncertainties? Joseph could not see what the Lord was doing. Peter could not see what the Lord was doing. But in the end, all things, Paul says in Romans 8, work together for the good of those who love him. Do you trust that or don't you? Do I trust that? He doesn't say everything's going to have a good result. And oftentimes people take these verses to mean that. Something bad happens, they say, oh, I wonder what good thing God's going to do through it. That's not what the text says. The text says all things work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't even say all things work together for good for everyone. It says we know all things work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Everything, everything. The worst thing that has ever happened to you, the worst thing that could ever happen to you, the best thing that has ever happened to you or ever could happen to you, all of it is working together in this amazing symphony of experience, working together to produce something good for you if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's nothing ever to fear because your God is sovereign. Yes, people have their wills for you. They do things to you. But at the end of the day, it is God who superintends. 
And I don't know why he allows what he does. I don't know why he allowed Satan to go after Job. But he's God. I'm not. But what I do know is that he's sovereign even over Satan. That Satan could do nothing to Job without divine permission. Joseph's brothers can do nothing to Joseph without divine permission. I was just listening with my, my students, my juniors. We're talking about church persecution in the early church. It's church history class. And we study Polycarp and we study some of the great martyrs. But then I always fast forward and I, I, show, I, listen, I have them listen to some audio from Joseph Zahn, who I have shared his name with you, a Romanian a Baptist pastor who in the 1970s and early 80s was battling with communism in, in Romania and trying to be a faithful minister and went through unbelievable you know, interrogations and arrests and beatings and all these kinds of things. And, and at one point he says that he was <clears throat> sitting in, in his early you know, uh, um, uh, indictment. He was being indicted and he, he's sitting there and before him are six generals or colonels or whatever and they're going to pass sentence on him. And... <laughs> He says to them at one point, the whole conversation is amazing, but he says to them at one point, gentlemen, one thing I know is that my God is sovereign. And he says, sirs, I know you can, he says this to the colonels who are about to indict him. He says, sirs, you cannot do one thing to me beyond what my father allows. And he said, when I see you, I see strings coming out of heaven. And you are my father's puppets. And you can do nothing to me beyond what my father allows. And then he says they did not like that interpretation of his, <laughs> of his experiences. But, 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 he says, but it's amazing to listen to him talk about that. That at the end of the day, I thought to myself, my worst enemies are God's servants. They are no more and no less than God's servants. And if my enemies are his servants, then what do I have to fear if my father is in control? Now, he admits going himself through dark nights of the soul, as you can imagine, going through persecution underneath the communist powers in Romania. But I'm so humbled by that. At the end of the day, we must feed our souls with this truth that our God is sovereign even over the worst that our enemies can do to us. And we know that all things are working together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, I will just say one last word on this. I encourage you to go back and look at Romans 8.28. Study it. Chew on it. Meditate on it. But we might also ask ourselves, and this is a side point, but one I think I need to make, being that I'm talking about Romans 8.28. All things work together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. But one key word in that verse that requires just a little more meditation is the word good. Because we do have to ask ourselves, to what end are all things working? Because as Americans, our idea of good is not always the biblical idea of good. Our idea of good is usually prosperity, comfort, peace, health, right? Tranquility. I mean, that's sort of what Americans are like after, right? We just want a decent life. We want to get through this thing safely. <laughs> You know, die in our sleep in very old age and just wake up in glory. I mean, that is the basic American dream. But that's not the good that the Bible is after or that Jesus is after for you. And the good there, I think, needs to be linked with verse 29. 
For we know all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And then verse 29, he says, for, so here's the link now, for all those he foreknew he predestined that, so you were predestined unto something, here's the purpose for which you were predestined, that they might be conformed to the image of his son. The good that all things are working toward in your life is that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus. That is your ultimate good. That is the thing you should be praying for and striving after. And that is the promise. All things are not going to work to the comfort of your life, as Joseph Zahn can attest to. But all things are working together. They're conspiring together underneath the sovereign hand of God's providence to conform you into the image of Jesus. That's what we long for, and that's what we hope for, and that's the promise that's given to us. So first, the providence of God and the providential salvation. But then secondly, our Savior, not only is he providential, brought to where he is by the sovereign hand of God through all the twists and the turns of history and even the persecution of his, of his uh, uh, brothers there at the time of the crucifixion, brought by God's providence to a place of salvation. But he's also, secondly, an ascendant Savior. And here, Joseph, by the hand of God, not only goes through the suffering, but he ascends to the right hand of Pharaoh, from which he is able to bestow these blessings. Brothers, God sent me here so that I could share the riches of Egypt with you. Here, take all these gifts and go. Go tell my father. Go tell my family and bring them all here now to me, and I will give them the best of the land. And he goes to Pharaoh and intercedes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh blesses Joseph's family with Goshen and the riches of Egypt. Do you see Christ in this? Jesus is the one who providentially goes through the suffering, ascends to the right hand of the Father, to what end? That he might bestow the riches of the kingdom upon his people. I was sent here so that I can bless you. And what did Paul say in Romans 8, which we read for our word of exhortation today? He is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you right now. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and right now at this moment, says Romans 8.34, he is interceding for you. He is bringing your concerns to Pharaoh. He's bringing your concerns to his heavenly Father who has gifted him with everything and said to him, bring him here. Bring him here and we'll give them the best. Didn't he say that in Romans 8? You now are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because of his suffering and his ascension that now you, his family, are welcomed into the land and blessed with every good thing. Again, what have we to fear then? I mean, that's the point Paul's making in Romans chapter 8. What, who can condemn us? Who can possibly oppose us? Who can possibly separate us now from him? Think of all the rhetorical questions he asks there, starting in verse 31. Who can do this and who can do that? And what do we have to fear? Nothing, because our brother is at the right hand of God and bestows all these things to us. And even as we were sitting here, I was thinking of Hebrews 2.11, that Jesus is not ashamed now in his position of exaltation to call us brothers. Think about that. Joseph goes through all the hell he goes through, 
and gets to the right hand of Pharaoh, and now his measly, weaselly, needy, beggarly brothers come sniveling in. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We have no food. They come bedraggled into the presence of Joseph, who they think is just some agent of Pharaoh, and they're begging. And Joseph is not ashamed to call them brothers. Joseph says, these are my brothers. He goes right to Pharaoh and says, hey, these are my brothers. And Pharaoh says, they're your brothers? Then they get the best. And Jesus, Hebrews 2.11, says he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Look at you. Look at us. He's not ashamed. You should be amazed at that. That the king of kings is not ashamed to say you are his brother or his sister. And he brings you in and he ushers you in before the Father. And the Father provides all our needs. What have we to fear if the Lord himself is our shepherd? Surely we shall not want. He gives us everything. No wonder at the end of that psalm he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I don't want to go anywhere else but Goshen. I don't want to go anywhere else but the presence of Joseph and the presence of this awesome Pharaoh, even God our Father. So he's a providential Savior, and as such, he's an ascendant Savior. And in his position of ascendancy, like he does in Pentecost, showers his church with good gifts and tells us to summon in the rest of the family. Bring them all. That's the Great Commission. Bring them all. Get them all in the land of Goshen. Go out now. Make disciples and get them in here that they can partake of this amazing blessing. So he's a providential Savior, and he's an ascendant Savior. And then finally, he's a gracious Savior. I mean, we know that. You don't even need me to preach this part of it. The brothers are trembling, as rightly they should. I mean, can you imagine how pale their faces go when Jesus says, brothers, it's me, Joseph, who you sold into slavery? I mean, can you imagine? The, you talk about cognitive. I mean, they are just, how can it be? At first, there's all kinds of questions, and then they start to recognize him. Of course, it's been many, many years now. He was a boy when they sold him off, and then all of a sudden it begins to hit them, oh, no, the brother we hated on, the brother we said we were going to kill, the brother we sold for our own profit, the brother we lied about and tortured our father over saying he had been killed, that brother now has the power to do with us whatever he will. And Joseph says to them, brothers, do not be afraid and don't be angry with yourselves. This is how he greets them. He greets them weeping. He throws himself upon them and manifests his love to them. He bestows forgiveness to them. He shows grace to them and elevates them and showers them of all people with gifts. It's shocking that you that he's not ashamed to call you brothers. That's shocking. But what's even more shocking is that he doesn't execute you. It's shocking that we're allowed to be gathered here today and be called sons and daughters, for we are the ones who have nailed him to the cross. It's our sin that sent him to the cross. But notice Joseph does not rub his brother's face in it. Right? He, he acknowledges, as we all need to acknowledge, our sin. You sold me here, but God sent me. Don't be angry. Do you see God's hand in this? 
He doesn't mash his brother's face in it. Just as Jesus, when he reveals himself to doubting Thomas, so graciously says, come, touch. When he comes to Peter, the threefold denier of the Lord Jesus Christ, who abandoned him right in Jesus' darkest hour, Jesus graciously and gently restores him. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, you know I do. Then go feed my sheep. And three times he asks him, giving him three chances to confess the name of Jesus and to profess his love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then says, then go. Now go, lead your brothers. Go, do the work that I've sent you to do now. So tender, so gracious, so compassionate, so forgiving. Jesus is, as Joseph, reconciling his brothers, condescending to his brothers, restoring his brothers, and forgiving his brothers. And brothers and sisters, this is the kind of Savior we have. Unlike Joseph, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords by nature. This is the God-man that we nailed to the cross. This is the God-man worthy of all praise and honor and glory that by our sin he was driven to the cross and crucified while we spit on him and pull his beard out and mock him as king of the Jews. This is the God-man we did this to. And on the other side, and even today, as we confess our sins, no rubbing faces in it, but free forgiveness bestowed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You're forgiven. You're restored. Don't, don't grieve, brothers. Do you see? Do you see what happened here? Do you see how through this, by the purpose and providence of God, our Savior suffered but was exalted so that he could bring blessing to you? Through the tears of your guilt, through the tears of your unconsciences, rejoice. Rejoice, for you have been forgiven, and you have been made co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gracious Savior. So through Joseph, this is the Savior that we worship, a providential, ascendant, and gracious Savior. May we have eyes to see it, and may we be humbled this morning. May we put ourselves in the shoes of Joseph's brothers. You know, I often say when, maybe when we get to the story of David and Goliath and so forth, I remind when I teach on it, my students, that you are not David. You know, oh, how often the story of David and Goliath gets taught and, and it's as if David is the one we're supposed to be in the story. And I remind people, you are no David. You are like David's brothers, trembling, peeing your pants over there in the corner because you're so f afraid of Goliath. And David comes and saves you from the mighty giant. Jesus is our David. And you're no Joseph either. I hate to break it to you. Right? You're like his brothers, as am I. Praise God that we have a Joseph. Praise God that we have one who has gone before us to secure our inheritance for us. And yes, we ought to be like Joseph. But the point of this story is not your Joseph. It's that you need a Joseph and praise God that he has his chosen man to be your savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you for your grace in providing us such a Joseph. For we confess that we are like the brothers, so full of our own conceit, envious of anyone who receives glory above us, looking to make a profit even off of our own brothers and sisters. 
But, Father, you, through our own sin, brought about the Savior of glory. You, through our own weakness, brought about the salvation of our souls through Jesus Christ, who is exalted to your right hand, who is not ashamed to call us, us, the beggars, the sinners, the ones guilty of his being crucified, not ashamed to call us brothers, and so gracious to bestow upon us all his kindness, the riches of his inheritance that we might share in them forevermore. Father, I pray that you would be with us in the midst of our dark nights. I pray that you would sustain us in the knowledge of this story to know that we have a Savior, a trailblazer, a Lord who is our shepherd, who is with us even through the valley of the shadow of death, for he himself has carved and and blazed the trail for us through it unto eternal life. Give us confidence in him, we pray. We ask this in his name. Amen.